and welcome to another edition of the SCTS Education Podcast. Uh, my name is Caroline Tulin and I'm one of the ST8 cardiothoracic trainees in the Northwest region. Today I'm speaking to Sarah Shirley, who's one of our perfusionists here at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. Sarah takes a keen role in the training of perfusionists within the department, so I thought who better to talk to us about the basics of bypass than her. In this episode we talk about key elements in running cardiopulmonary bypass, from calculating flow rates to basic kit requirements, and we also touch on elements of communication between perfusionists and surgeons and how we can keep this running as smoothly as possible. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, we'll move on to bypass basics. Welcome to the SCTS Education Podcast. And today um, I have Sarah Shirley, who is one of our perfusionists here at uh, Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. And you're very involved in teaching and training. Yes, that's right. And so I thought you'd be ideal to tell us about basics of bypass because there are so many things that I think, particularly as cardiothoracic trainees, particular, um, I say cardiothoracic because we all have to do the same exams yeah. and it's important that we all understand things. Thoracic guys, you know, in case they need bypass in an emergency and cell savers, we've encountered that today. Yeah. Uh, so, so, and, uh, and so it's really important that we know like some of the basics and the terminology because uh, I think it's something that gets skipped over a little bit in training. I don't know how you feel encountering yeah. trainees at various stages. I think probably communication is one of the things mm-hmm. with trainees that, you know, Sometimes trainees will come up to us afterwards and say, what can I improve? What was good? Mm-hmm. What was bad? Yeah. Um, and it's nearly always the communication side of things that, you know, is the feedback that we'd give. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, as with the communication, it's partly a bit of hesitancy. I think when you're starting, you're, you're trying, you're like, I think I'm supposed to say this now. Or also just not knowing, not mm. just not knowing. Or And I think there's various terms that we use when we're using bypass that aren't always clear immediately and there gets to a point in time where it gets a bit embarrassing you think I really should know that by now and I don't and I've not asked or there's been other things that have taken priority in kind of your training and so basically I want to start from the beginning (laughs) and also understand what happens what what your ideas are and what your sort of um, priorities are from a perfusionist point of view because um, you know, you have a dedicated training program, which is really effective from what I've seen. Yeah, it really is. You know, I'm always really impressed by perfusion trainees and how you know you go from you know not necessarily even being in a cardiac theatre before, mm-hmm. coming from all walks of life, like loads of different experiences, and going through this training program, which literally, you know, by the end of it, you come out and okay, you may not have seen every single thing there is to do with you know with cardiac surgery, but they are well prepared every scenario and I, that has definitely struck me when I've seen well, that's good there, to hear, so, yeah and yeah. you know we do put quite a lot of work into yeah to getting the trainees and I think one of the things that particularly um, here at Liverpool mm. that we have is we always take the approach that we're training a future colleague mm. so if you um, think in two years time that's the person I'm going to be on call with mm. when we've got a patient on bypass on the unit and another patient in the theatre and that's the person who I'm going to have to rely on mm you want them to be ready, you want them to be as good as possible, you don't mm. want them to have any gaps in their knowledge. Yes. 
it focuses the mind somewhat. It and it it's also should be what the way we train yeah. in, you know, cardiothoracics and I think we're maybe not as good at that as you guys are. And we could probably learn a few things. Um, so one of the first things mm. I was gonna say, so I've put down here um, what your, your assessments, when you first, you've got a patient on the list yeah. and you see them, say their routine case, either valve or grafts or whatever, what are the key things that you're looking at when you're sort of thinking what, what I need to plan for for a case from a perfusionist point of view? So if it's a fairly routine sort of, um, like say valve or grafts, mm -hmm. um, it, the, the most important things that I'm thinking about are things like the patient's size, so their height and weight, mm -hmm. um, which will determine the flow that I'm going to need and might determine um, equipment selection. A small patient, I would generally try and you know, minimise the circuit, especially if they're very small. Mm -hmm. um, they're starting haemoglobin, mm -hmm. um, because obviously you need oxygen carrying capacity. For, very for important. Yeah. Very important. So actually, just go, go on that point. Yeah. So what starting haemoglobin, what's the lowest level that you'd be happy with? I mean... Um, does it depend on the patient's size as well? It really does, yeah. yeah. And, and things like their, their volume. So, you can have a patient who has quite a low hemoglobin but actually is quite fluid overloaded. Mm -hmm. And so when you put them onto bypass, the difference um, between their starting hemoglobin and their sort of on bypass hemoglobin mm -hmm. hasn't changed very much because mm -hmm. they're already fluid overloaded. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could have um, a small little old lady who's very dry yeah. and as soon as you put her on bypass, even though she might have had quite a good starting hemoglobin, it's dropped really, really far. So it's, um, the, the size determines equipment selection, but also does inform you a little bit about their circulating volume. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the, uh, what's wrong with them will determine their circulating volume as well. Um, and whether they've been in hospital for a long time and things like that can all influence that. And then I would say the other main thing that I always look at is, is um, their renal function. Mm -hmm. So um, often if a patient has sort of very, very poor kidneys, it will be mentioned in the, the team mm -hmm. brief. But um, patients who are sort of borderline on their EGFR, I'll always have a look at that. Mm -hmm. So I'd say they're probably the main things that I'm looking at. Okay. Um, when you're looking at borderline on their EGFR, is that because you're thinking this patient might need filtering on bypass, for example, or is it just in terms of how fluid overloaded they might be? It's more related to how I choose to manage the bypass. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who has a borderline um, kidneys, I might deliberately try and keep their flow up, um, deliberately try and keep their pressure up, perhaps just manage things in a slightly different way. Yeah, um, yeah that's interesting isn't it because I, I always think um, when it comes to kidneys they don't use that much um, sort of oxygen as such but there's a lot of flow that goes through them. They're very sensitive to ischemia as well so right. um, we tend to use them as a marker Mm -hmm. um, so in patients who have, um, you know, <laughs> declining urine output on bypass and things like that, often mm -hmm. that's a marker of other things that are going on as well. Interesting. So, so um, when you say declining um, urine output, would that be, because when we, when, I guess when we're looking at, say, some patient on the ITU, um, and we're measuring it on an hourly basis or so for, for oh yeah, this patient said was 100, now it's 50, now it's 30, you know. But is there, when you're looking at it, are you looking at it at the same sort of hourly rate or are you looking at it more regularly than that? No, not hourly because mm -hmm. sometimes you're only on bypass for That's an hour. what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it's it's more just keeping an eye on the catheter and, yeah. and seeing if there's actually urine output. Sometimes, um, you know, it's quite noticeable that uh -huh. there's absolutely nothing coming mm -hmm. through and sometimes you can see that there's a regular drip. So, yeah. 
it's it's less specific than sort of an hourly observation because mm. bypass is quite short. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you can really see on a sort of moment to moment. Uh, okay, this is what bypass is doing, and this is what uh, there might be a problem. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so in terms of estimating flow rates, then <laughs> how do you do it? So we calculate um, the flow rate based on the patient's body surface area, and then um, there's a factor. So here we use two point four mm-hmm. times body surface area, um, which gives you a number. But I would say that the number, really, it's it's a guide, it gives you information, but we don't slavishly mm-hmm. flow to that number. And there's quite a big trend now in perfusion um, looking at using delivery of oxygen measurements rather than a, an absolute flow number. So um, there we will sort of calculate, you know, look at the, the flow, the hemoglobin, patient's body surface area, and try and uh, estimate roughly what the delivery of oxygen is. Um, fortunately, we've got a little calculator on the computer so we can just type the numbers in, which helps. Um, but that's been linked to, um, again, the kidney mm-hmm. um, injury. Um, and there have been a few papers published recently which um, are sort of showing that delivery of oxygen is a, a good marker for bypass. Mm-hmm. So the um, concept is goal-directed perfusion. Right. Um, if anyone wants to pick it up, that's, yeah. that's the concept. Um, so we'll use a flow, so take a fairly average man. Mm-hmm. Um, normally their flow will be sort of two point, sorry, um, 4.5 to 5 litres roughly. But then, you know, we'll flow around that number above or below, mm-hmm. depending on what's going on. And this is litres per minute? Litres like, per minute. That's if we yes. measure cardiac output yeah, as well. Yeah, litres per minute. Yeah. And one of the things that, obviously, we, we go through body surface area um, and not BMI. Yeah. And I, I think that's because BMI is a more representative of adiposity rather than body surface area. But I don't know if you can expand on that at all. Like, yeah. There's a difference. I mean, historically, we've always used body surface area. Yeah. Um, but even body surface area, it doesn't fully take into account you know what the, what the tissues are composed of mm. so you do find you know differences and we have again another calculator which is on the computer which um have all been put on there very handy to make yeah. life easy um where we can look at a, a lean body mass yeah if you've got a patient who is obese mm-hmm. it can be quite useful to look at their um, lean body mass and calculate the flow the same way mm-hmm. but with that other number mm-hmm. um and it gives you sort of like a flaw Mm-hmm. that you can think about with your flow so if you can't achieve your full flow that you had originally calculated for some reason mm-hmm. um, it means that you you sort of find a level that you're quite comfortable at mm-hmm. without worrying that you're um, underflowing them and causing a lot of ischemia mm-hmm. um, I like where I can to try and achieve the the sort of upper number yes. but it just gives you that that comfort that that you're not flowing too low. Yeah, so you've got a little bit of wiggle room yeah. for, for where you are. And in terms of sort of, um, you were talking about goal-directed perfusion, mm. what sort of outcomes are you looking at in terms of perfusion of, of the oxygen delivery and um, whether or not your flows are meeting your targets or not? Um, so the number, if I remember correctly, mm. is um, 275 mils right. um, per meter squared, I want to say that is, yeah. <laughs> of, um, of oxygen. Uh-huh. Um, and like I say, the calculator calculates the, the patient's um, body surface area, the um, oxygen content of the arterial blood, mm-hmm. um, and the flow that you're delivering out. Mm-hmm. And what's quite nice with the calculator is you can adjust 
numbers within it. So if it calculates your number um, below 275, then you can um, go, okay, well, if I give a unit of blood and the haemoglobin goes up mm -hmm. this much, how much of a difference will that make? Oh, okay. um, and you can just play around with the numbers. If mm -hmm. I just increase my flow, I've got plenty of volume in my reservoir, I can just increase my flow a bit. Mm -hmm. Can I actually deliver enough extra oxygen without having to give that unit of blood? Right. Um, so I personally find it a really useful little calculator to mm -hmm. have. Um, and, and it just, again, it's more, it's more information, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, which just helps you think about everything you're doing. The other thing that's a really important marker in terms of delivery of oxygen, obviously, is lactate. Yeah. So we keep a really close eye on the lactates as mm -hmm. well when we're on bypass. Um, and it's always really nice if they don't rise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And are you, what's, what sort of lactate ranges are you comfortable with? Do you think this is satisfactory? I would say um, that changes depending on how long you're on bypass. Mm -hmm. So if it's anything under the three hours, I would prefer my lactate was less than two. Mm -hmm. On a, you know, a routine sort of yeah. um, normal patient. Once you've gone over three hours, it's noticeable there does tend to be a bit of a, mm. a shift. Mm -hmm. um, patients in general, seem to struggle mm -hmm. more after they've crossed that three hour threshold. Um, so sort of lactates of three, mm -hmm. I'd be relatively comfortable with at mm -hmm. that point. But once it's getting beyond three, even on a longer case, mm -hmm. I would be concerned that potentially there's something going on. And where do you think, where does that lactate come from as such? Is it everywhere <laughs> or, uh, or do we even know? I don't yeah. think we even know yeah. really. I mean, mm. um, I suspect in a lot of patients it's just everywhere, yeah. um, but you do have some patients, the ones where it goes up really quickly, mm. really suddenly, I think it's often something specific in those patients. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, perfusion of the gut can be a problem on mm -hmm. bypass, so this isn't based on any real science, yeah. just my personal gut yeah. feeling, yeah. but I think it probably is often yeah. that. Yeah, and it does, seem, it does seem to be that when patients do present with things like bowel ischemia at a later stage yeah. that often those are the patients where it's been a real struggle of like keeping you know, perfusion pressures up during bypass mm. and they've had to use these constrictors and all this yeah. stuff you know maybe more than normal yeah just from what I've seen and when we've um, been looking into it a little bit here um, so uh, in so absolutely so lactate's important do you do you pay much attention to um, like venous saturations and things like that we on do. bypass? Yeah, again, so we have um, venous saturations. So venous saturations on bypass um, are often in the region of kind of, let's say, high 70s, 80s. Mm -hmm. um, when they get substantially lower than that, then, you know, you're concerned that you're consuming a lot of oxygen. Right. Um, so you would want to try and increase your oxygen delivery for mm. that reason. Um, Similarly, when your uh, venous saturation is extremely high, mm -hmm. if it's in the 90s, mm. especially in um, a patient whose lactate is also rising, mm. then that's really quite a concern because yeah. what you t what that tends to suggest is that um, patient isn't actually extracting any mm. oxygen. So they could be sort of shunting there blood from... There could be some shunting or, going on or yeah. something like that, mm -hmm. which means that the, the blood isn't... the oxygen isn't actually being delivered to mm. the tissues. So mm -hmm. that in those patients, Increasing your your flow might help, but increasing the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood, for example, by giving yeah. them a unit, is probably not going to yeah. make any difference at all. Yeah. In terms of flows and increasing or decreasing flows, what does that mean in practice? What are you actually doing with the bypass machine at that point? So to increase the flow, I literally just turn a pump. Mm -hmm. 
that way. <laughs> so I turn it to the right, and yeah. to decrease, I just turn it to the left. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like sort of speeding up a car, like yeah. pressing the accelerator. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and depending on what kind of pump you're using, whether it's a roller pump, you just decrease the speed of the rollers. Mm-hmm. If it's a centrifugal pump, it's just increasing the revolutions per minute, mm-hmm. um, and, and that will increase the, the flow. Um, the limiting factors to mm-hmm. that are um, really what's happening upstream, what's happening downstream. Mm-hmm. So my venous return into the, into the reservoir, do I have enough extra volume to be able to increase the flow? Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the pressure in the arterial line like? Do I have the capacity um, to be able to deliver that extra flow without causing too high a line pressure? Ah, uh, right, okay. Because sometimes, uh, say, say if somebody's got a low arterial pressure, oh, I know, I've, I've been in situations where there's been like, oh, just increase your flows, you know, okay. and that is not going to work, is it, as far as I know, in terms of then pushing your perfusion pressure up? I mean, in theory mm. it can, but it's mm. often not possible. So yeah. um, we have a finite amount of circulating volume. Yes. And we've got, obviously, all of the circuit to keep fully primed and we've got to have some volume in the reservoir so if you don't have enough volume to increase the flow mm-hmm. then you can't yeah um so then you could say okay well add some volume mm-hmm. and increase the mm-hmm. flow but then all you're doing is diluting the blood yeah so you're not actually increasing the oxygen delivery to the tissues you're pumping it faster yeah but all you've done is dilute what you've got what you've got mm. you've not actually increased the oxygen carrying capacity mm. um and then the other factor is of course if you um if you've got a arterial line um, cannula with a, a relatively high line pressure at that point, mm-hmm. and then you want to increase your flow, then you're increasing the potential, the damage to the to the mm. cells and the velocity at the tip of that cannula. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the limiting factors really to increasing flow. And just in, just saying just increase your flow isn't necessarily going to be very effective. Yeah, so there are things that are going to yeah. make that more difficult. Yeah. And you've probably already thought of those things already Generally. when you're in that situation. Generally, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose as well, with kind of adding volume in, it's very temporary, I would have thought as well. So you kind of add a bit of volume and then you're still flowing, you know, pushing the same amount and then it, some of that will maybe dissipate or, you know, especially if someone's very dilated, for example, or something. Yeah, yeah. volume on bypasses is a really tricky one because um, there are so many factors mm. to how much volume you have sat in your reservoir. So the cannulation, mm-hmm. um, particularly the venous cannulation, and quite often, you know, you'll go on bypass and the perfusionist will say, I don't have, you know, um, very much volume. How's the venous cannula? And and there'll be the message back: the heart is empty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is fine. Yeah. Now that's interesting because I think you're right. We do. We go. Oh no! Look, it's all flat here. Yeah. So everything is fine. It's your problem. <laughs> but evidently, that's not always. Well, the case. I mean, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. You know, it is actually just that the patient's very empty. Yeah. So there isn't yeah. much venous return. So that mm-hmm. is sometimes the mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can have is an empty heart, but with the um, sort of the obstruction to flow being somewhere else. So you can have patients where um, they can end up with um, venous congestion in the head, mm-hmm. or venous congestion, well, generally ends up in the liver, mm-hmm. which obviously is very bad in mm-hmm. terms of um, their, what happens to them postoperatively. They can end yeah. up being quite quite poorly from that. So mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, I think even if the heart is flat, mm. it's quite often worth just having a little tweak with the, 
the venous cannula if it's possible. Mm. Um, because the, you know, the better the drainage we get, then the better flow we can deliver. Yes. And, and obviously that's, that's all to the good. Mm. But then you've got other factors like um, whether the patient was dry to mm. start with, whether they're edematous to start with, mm-hmm. um, leaky tissues, inflammation, all those sorts of things can feed into what your venous return is like and, and how much volume you've got on bypass. So you can be in a situation where adding volume is very temporary. Yeah. You know, you and, and so you then start not wanting to add it because you can mm-hmm. see that the level isn't um, staying and it's dropping. Mm-hmm. You can see your urine output's not particularly great, so it's not yeah. just being excreted. Yeah. Um, maybe the lactate's starting to rise and you've got quite a few factors that are feeding in and it's not any one of them yeah it's the combination of them which suggests that things aren't great mm-hmm. and just adding more and more volume to that patient is probably not doing them any yeah. good so um, going on as well yeah, yeah so you can end up in that kind of scenario mm. so one of the things that you mentioned there was watching your levels as well yes. so what are levels <laughs> okay so the level is the amount of volume that is sat in the reservoir mm-hmm. um that amount will vary massively depending upon the patient's body surface area mm-hmm. and their volume which we've already discussed mm-hmm. in terms of you know whether they're um, fluid overloaded or very dry mm-hmm. um, and the f- speed at which I'm flowing so mm-hmm. I could have a small patient who I'm flowing at two litres a minute and mm-hmm. I'll have lots of volume in my reservoir mm-hmm. and I can have that same patient who I'm flowing at five litres a minute mm-hmm. and have nothing in my reservoir yeah so the amount of volume in the reservoir is, is determined by the, the speed at which I'm flowing the mm-hmm. pump, but also the speed at which I'm getting venous return. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the way I try and think of it is that it's my thinking time. Mm. Um, if the volume is around about 400 mils and I'm flowing at four liters a minute, mm-hmm. then that indicates how long I've got before I can empty it. So if the venous cannula comes out mm-hmm. or becomes completely obstructed, mm-hmm. I need to, you know, that's the amount of time I've got before I completely enter my reservoir and potentially fill the circuit full of air. Okay. And how much time is that? When it gets to like the low levels, like how oh, much it's time? Not, it's yeah. a couple of seconds. <laughs> I was going to say, because yeah, I think it's long. like, I was looking at one of the reservoirs and I was like, yeah. 150 mils doesn't sound like a like it doesn't no. sound like a lot of time so yeah that's why and that's one of the alarms isn't it the it is. res, if you if you hear that um, and it's interesting because there's there's a, one of the phrases that we use is watch the levels yes. and and I, <laughs> I don't know that's that's essentially when we're purposefully occluding the venous line in order to fill the heart mm. and maybe check the length of graphs for example yeah. Um, and there are different ways of doing that, aren't there? So we can either say to you guys, load on. Now, when you guys, when if we say that, what are you doing at your end? So when you say load on, mm. we're doing the same thing. We're yeah. partially occluding the venous line yeah. to add volume into yeah. the patient by restricting venous return. Yeah. We'll do it using a clamp on the venous line. Um, yeah. So we'll put a clamp across the venous line and squeeze it mm-hmm. partially. Um, yeah. And the nice thing about doing it ourselves is that we can squeeze and watch at the same time so mm-hmm. you get a, a kind of an automatic feedback you can just release mm-hmm. your hand whereas when it's being done at the table 
you, it, there's just that slight delay in mm. I have to then say and then somebody else has to move yes. out. And by the time that alarm starts going off, you're already less than 150 mils basically, aren't you? Because essentially that's the reservoir alarm and yeah. And, and yeah. So the, um, the reservoir alarm, as well as alarming, it will automatically slow and then ultimately oh, stop the pump. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of safety, it's, mm. it's pretty safe. Yeah. I don't like relying on technology mm-hmm. yeah you, know, you you because one day it will fail you yeah um but it is actually a, a good um safety feature so the alarm the the pumps we have which mm-hmm. is the s5 mm-hmm. they make two different sounds mm-hmm. so there's like a duh, duh, duh. oh yes duh, duh, duh. Yeah, yeah. that's when it's just tripping the alarm mm-hmm. and it's slowing the pump but not stopping it right yeah and then the other alarm mm-hmm. is it's yeah. completely cut out yeah. and the pump stopped yeah and the reason for it stopping is so we don't get air in the circuit, yes. yeah. Because otherwise, what would happen? The air would be sucked in through into the arterial. Yeah. So the air would yeah. come down um, into the arterial mm-hmm. um, pump boot, mm-hmm. pumped into the oxygenator, and up to the patient. So you could yeah. potentially, and again, very quickly. You mm-hmm. know, if you've got the pump going at yeah. five liters a minute, very quickly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can see that happening. So mm-hmm. so yeah, so very important for that sort of safety feature there absolutely okay so I was just thinking of um, one of the other things that you we were talking about sort of big and small patients and things and flows and one of the things that you talked about was cannula size and that I think is really important that we don't always or I, I mean speaking from personal experience fully appreciate what cannula for who and how it's calculated because often you'll come in and you'll present them to us yeah. so a lot of the time until I think you're doing more independent practice it's not something that you necessarily have to there's so much else you're thinking about so if you talk us through about how you choose a cannula for a patient what mm. what cannulas are best which ones you know have flow rates etc so it, it's a fairly um vague line rather than a, a hard and fast line because the cannula capacities overlap each other mm-hmm. so you could um we use the eopa mm-hmm. um arterial cannula here mm-hmm. and um the 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 20 is um the 20 french cannula is absolutely fine for anybody um up to i would say probably about four and a half liters mm-hmm. a minute roughly mm-hmm. um after that you would start to get high arterial line pressure though it still probably be okay mm-hmm. a little bit higher um then You've got the 22, which is sort of, I would say, the most commonly used size mm-hmm. here. Um, and then we've got the 24, which would be for your, you know, your, your big patients. So I would say probably over like five and a half litres a minute. Mm-hmm. But then there's other factors that come in as well. I quite like to pulse patients. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. But not everybody pulses. Mm-hmm. And when I'm pulsing, the, the way the pulse wave is generated is that the pump goes fast, slow, fast, oh, slow, fast, right. slow. Mm-hmm. And when it's going fast, obviously the velocity at the tip of that cannula mm. is much faster yeah. than. So if I'm pulsing a patient at five liters a minute, mm-hmm. it's going much faster than five mm-hmm. for a portion of the time, yeah. and then much slower. So I would always try and upsize my cannula mm-hmm. so that the velocity I can reduce it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have um, a Tycos gauge on my pump, and you can see. When I'm pulsing, the swing in the pressure, mm-hmm. um, and I could have arterial line pressure maybe peaking at 250, 300 mm-hmm. uh, millimeters of mercury um, momentarily, mm-hmm. and then dropping back down. Mm-hmm. Whereas the same patient 
with a static flow, mm -hmm. it might be 180 to 200 milliliters of mercury. So it mm -hmm. makes quite a big difference yeah. um, in terms of, of what's actually happening in the cannula. And so when you're getting those measurements on your gauge, your end, then except when we're measuring the blood pressure, say in, in the radial arterial yeah. line or whatever, we're getting a mean of say 50, 60 ish. Um, so that increase from the end of what where you're measuring is that generated by the length of tubing um, up until the point of getting to the patient. I'm just thinking in terms of it, it's always much higher much at your higher, end yeah. than it is at yeah. the end of like, at the patient end, if you like. Yeah. So it's all about um, like pressure drops along mm. the way, isn't it? So it, um, if you measure the um, the pressure before the oxygenator, so after mm -hmm. the arterial pump boot mm -hmm. um, with a roller pump, um, but before you've gone into the oxygenator, mm -hmm. then um, that will be the highest pressure point within the circuit. Mm -hmm. And exactly what that pressure point is will vary depending on the flow rate and the oxygenator that you use. Mm -hmm. um, they have different pressure drops across different devices, mm -hmm. but could be 500 millimeters of mercury potentially right. at that location. Mm -hmm. Then you get pressure loss going through the oxygenator and the length of tubing. Mm -hmm. And we measure um, the arterial line just before it goes into the patient. Mm -hmm. So that might be a 180 millimeters of mercury, yeah. something like that. Then it's going into the patient and then it's going around the body mm -hmm. and you're measuring it at the radial. Yes. Um, or the femoral potentially. Yeah. Um, so all of those three pressures mm. are reading something different at a different location. Mm -hmm. um, but they're all important to know. And the other thing with pressures, so if you, if we, you know, God forbid, ended up causing an aortic dissection, what sort of pressures do you see at your end when that sort of thing happens? Um, well, <laughs> it can vary, I imagine. It can. Um, yeah. I've had it, um, I think a lot of it depends on exactly what's happened at mm. the cannula tip. Yeah. Um, so I've had it where the pressure has gone right down. Right. And we've actually seen a much, much lower pressure. Mm -hmm. But I have also seen... Yeah. The opposite. So I think it probably indicates exactly, it depends what's happening, but something changes. Yeah. Um, and obviously you tend to see something change on the radial and then it will depend a little bit on where the dissection is, whether, mm. you know, it's dissected off or whether yeah. it's still in the... So it can be quite tricky um, to diagnose a dissection just based on pressures. Yes. But you would say that something has changed. Yes, and that's the more important factor, yeah. that something's changed rather. Because obviously one of the sort of traditional teachings is that uh, oh, high line pressure, and obviously but high line pressure can be that you're against the wall of a yes. vessel or you're cannulated, you know, nominal or something, I don't know, something's yeah. flicked up in the wrong place. Um, so uh, so actually it can be that that it can do either or, basically, when you have a dissection, it's a change and that's, a, that's the yeah. problem. Okay. Okay. Um, so one of the other things I was going to ask you, you touched on earlier, was about um, the circuit size and, mm. um, and how do you manage that and making the circuit either smaller or bigger depending on the patient? Um, I think this is something which probably varies a lot from trust to trust. Mm -hmm. So we here um, have a, a standard um, bypass circuit, which because we only do adults, yeah. we have one standard circuit. Yeah. Um, which will do for almost anybody. Mm -hmm. um, when we've got a very small patient, then we can make certain things to reduce the circuit. So one of the first things we can do is just trim tubing lengths. We have a fairly sort of well-designed circuit, which doesn't have lots of excess tubing in mm -hmm. it, but you can just trim a little bit off mm -hmm. here and there. And you know, if you've got a very small patient with a low hemoglobin, you want to do everything you can. Yeah. Um, 
you can change the venous line that can make quite a big difference so our venous line in the standard circuit is half inch tubing mm -hmm. if you reduce that down to three eighths tubing right okay. um, you you yeah. do save quite a bit of volume there oh that's interesting because i kind of in my mind is kind of like arterial is three eighths venous is yeah. half inch um, um, but you can interchange those depending on yeah. on what's necessary, and so a narrow or a small I guess it's a smaller lumen tube for a venous line is possible. It's just it's not necessary unless you're yeah. 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 Is there any? I was wondered is there a kind of a safety element of having the two sides different lumens, or is it just the way it's historically developed? I mean, it, it, there probably mm. is in mm. the inner unit that's used to it, because yeah. then you instinctively go, okay, that's this this. Yeah. By, almost by feel. Mm. They do have a stripe on as well, which yes. helps. Yes. That's yeah. a nice little <laughs> yeah. uh, clue there with the stripe. Yeah. Um, but I think it, quite a lot of units would use a 3-8 venous line more routinely than we do. Right. Um, so for them, I think they're probably fine with it. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's one of those things where it's what you're used to, isn't it? Yes. So if you're used to having a half inch, then then that's what you're used to having as a venous yeah. line. Um, by trimming it all on the table and mm. keeping the lengths quite short, it can actually make quite a big difference right. to the overall um, prime volume of the mm. circuit. Um, and when it comes to sort of trying to conserve hemoglobin, we mm. um, use wrap here as well, yes. which again is a variable thing. So some units do it routinely like we, we wrap mm. virtually every patient yes. um, some will use it sometimes and mm. some don't really use it much at all so mm. it's it's one of those things that varies but um, we've found that you can um, reduce um, the dilution effect mm. so as well as um, hopefully preserving hemoglobin and not having a big drop in hemoglobin it's the other dilutional effects that can occur mm -hmm. um, in terms of like circulating catecholamines and things like that, right. which can cause the patient to have quite a big drop in blood pressure when you first go on bypass. I see. Um, okay. By sort of limiting that big whoosh mm. of crystalloid into the patient, you can actually, hopefully, um, preserve their um, their map and not have to give them a big yeah. squeeze of uh, constrictor. And how much? crystalloid is that in real terms so in our circuit yeah. and this is one of those things that you know will vary from unit to unit in our circuit we prime with about 1.5 liters yeah so but it's a decent volume isn't it's it? it's a decent yeah. volume if um if i've got a small patient and i do all my trimmings and mm -hmm. and we swap out the venous line that that would be down to about 1.2 liters so okay. you can save sort of two three hundred yeah um and then before going on bypass, there's I always have some volume in the reservoir which I've been using um, mm -hmm. to circulate. I'll empty that, mm -hmm. and then we'll wrap. Yeah. Um, how much volume you take out mm -hmm. when wrapping varies a little bit depending upon how aggressive you are with the wrap, mm -hmm. which will depend on how well the patient's tolerating it in terms of their blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, but you can usually take somewhere between four and six hundred mils. Mm -hmm. So you can take the prime volume from maybe 1.5 mm -hmm. down to eight, 900 mils. Yeah. And just because I know that RAP is something that people get confused by, it yeah. uh, stands for retrograde autologous. Retrograde autologous prime. prime. Yeah. And so what are you actually sort of physically doing when you're doing that procedure? So what you do, once you've cannulated the patient mm -hmm. and you're ready to go and bypass, um, we'll take the blood out of the arterial line mm -hmm. using the patient's blood pressure to drive it mm -hmm retrograde yeah. so backwards down mm -hmm. through the arterial line mm -hmm. back through the oxygenator and into um, 
But actually, I use an empty bag. Yeah. So I have an empty bag that I mm-hmm. use for priming in the first instance. Right. And I just have the um, prime volume, so the crystalloid displace into that bag. Mm-hmm. If the patient's tolerating it quite well, I can displace all the way until I start to get pink in that line yeah. when I know that I've actually completely displaced that whole set. Okay. Um, if the patient isn't tolerating it, you can just stop at any time mm-hmm. and go straight on to bypass. So yeah. um, it's, it, it's, there's no particular risk in doing it. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I'm just going to consult my, my epic list of stuff. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask about oxygenator limits as well because I didn't realise this until recently, but not all oxygenators have they don't have unlimited flows apparently no. like yeah it does depend on the size of the oxygenator and that was a, like i never thought of the oxygenator being a limiting factor mm. but I, I understand in some patients it can be in terms of it you can know, be. depending on how big they are um but uh, yeah what sort of flows do you get through your average oxygenator is it so we um a lot of companies will sell mm-hmm. two what they describe as adult oxygenators mm-hmm. Um, they'll have a slightly smaller one and a slightly larger one. Mm-hmm. Generally, and again, different manufacturers will have slightly different guidance and different rules. Generally, the smaller oxygenator will be rated up to six litre flow mm-hmm. and the larger up to eight litre flow. Right. Um, but what you can see um, just from sort of when you've been using them a long time is that even though they've got different rated flows, you can wriggle around in that a little mm-hmm. bit. So. Um, the, the smaller ones, it's might be rated up to six litres, but if the patient was 6.1, it'd yeah. probably be fine, you know. Yeah. Um, we'd actually only use the larger one mm-hmm. here. Um, again, because we only have adult practice, we generally our population, you get the odd little mm-hmm. old lady, don't you? But yeah. actually, our population aren't particularly small in general. So we've never felt the need to have the smaller oxygenator mm-hmm. on the shelf. You do save a little tiny bit of priming volume, obviously, with it being a slightly smaller oxygenator, they will have a slightly smaller prime volume. Mm-hmm. But the difference is relatively negligible when I've been describing, you know, several hundred mils here and several hundred mils there, yeah. that things like the wrap, the, the amount you can save by having a different oxygenator is relatively small. Mm-hmm. And one disadvantage um, here to having different oxygenators, and one of the reasons why we haven't done it yeah. is because we've got quite a large off-pump cabbage uh, practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We often have oxygenators set up, mm. and if you had different sizes, then you'd be constantly having to change, oh, well, actually, mm. I've set up a small one for this one, but that patient's large now, and yeah. so it would complicate things quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, we just use the one, but many centres would have two different sizes on the shelf and they would select the oxygenator based on the patient that they've got okay. in their size. Brilliant, thanks. So I think now, should we go on to talk a little bit about communication? Okay. Because that's what you were absolutely saying, is, is the sort of, um, the, the main thing that kind of, well, one of the things that kind of causes confusion, especially when you're trainees, and I probably especially as consultants as well, actually, I suspect it doesn't change that much. Okay. <laughs> and maybe if you can nail it when you're a trainee, hopefully you're going to nail it when you're a consultant, but there's no guarantee. Uh, so, so I was wondering, what are the sort of key things that you guys absolutely need to communicate to us and that we need to respond to? Okay. If you um, so the, the key things that we need to communicate mm-hmm. to you are if there's any kind of change on the pump. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, um, we, I mean we mentioned with the aortic dissection, mm-hmm. if the arterial line pressure suddenly changes, mm-hmm. um, if it's gone up, mm-hmm. um, you know, consider, compared to where it was previously, 
then it's very important we communicate that with you. If we have any kind of problem, um, mechanical or any kind of failure on the pump, obviously we, it's important we communicate that with you. Um, the, that first communication might be, we are off by mass. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. it's very important that everyone's on the same page with that. Yeah. Um, and then it, most of the communication, other than those sort of big sort of problem mm -hmm. situations, are just the back and forth of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's been 20 minutes since cardioplegia yeah. or um, I'm trying to think what else. Mm -hmm. The, the vent isn't sucking or, yeah. you know, just a normal little communication. Mm -hmm. um, going back the other way, mm -hmm. we can't see what you can see. Mm. And quite often um, being informed of, especially when something's going wrong, and I yeah. think this isn't a training thing, I think this is a, a cardiac surgical <laughs> failing. Yeah. Often people clam up when it's not going mm. well because they focus on what they're doing, they're you know, trying to problem solve their own problem yeah. and they shut down a little bit. Yeah. And actually that tends to be the time when the communication is the most important mm -hmm. um, because quite often we can help. Yes. You know, if, if there's a problem and your field of vision is being flooded with lots of blood, mm -hmm. then we can just go to three-quarter flow for a little bit of time, yeah. just help you out a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a problem with the aorta falling apart, we can deliberately drop the blood pressure a little bit, yeah. help you out a little bit. So quite often, you know, that communication stops us feeling frustrated and not understanding what's happening, mm -hmm. not knowing why something's changed. Mm -hmm. But also we can help you out often if we know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so if, so basically just, yeah, keep talking. Keep talking, <laughs> and yeah. Other things that I kind of thought were, um, were useful, useful mental points for me when I'm like kind of trying to remember making sure I'm saying the things that I need to be saying to you guys is I try and listen out for full flow. And that the other thing that I think I do poorly is communicate temperature as well, because it's something that is, it's, when you're routinely working with a particular consultant, particularly when you're mm -hmm. a trainee, often that's part of the routine. You guys know more than we yes. do in terms of you've got your list and you're like, oh yeah, so-and-so likes this, this and this and this. So actually, a lot of this happens automatically and you don't realise mm -hmm. how much is happening automatically until it ain't automatic. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I was, and, and it's not so much that, like at the beginning you could say, oh, you know, we're cooling to 34 or 32 or whatever, but I think um, at the rewarming, rewarming is the, is the bit okay. that... Yeah. yeah, it's always good to rewarm. <laughs> I mean, generally, if you haven't, if especially if we know the operation mm. and, and where you're up to, yes, um, yeah. you'll get a little prompt if you yes. haven't asked us to rewarm. So yes. you know, generally, but um, it's I think from your perspective, it's having a set point in the operation, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. with grafts, at this point, I will say rewarm yes. because I've got this much left to do, and yes. with a valve, you know, closing the aorta, yeah. rewarm, whatever it might be. Exactly. Um, so it's all, that's all about routine, isn't yeah. it? Oh yeah. In terms of flows and flow up, flow down, um, three quarters flow. How long are you? I mean, I'm sure it varies between patients, but how long are you comfortable with having, say, three quarters flow or half flow? Three quarters flow, I'd be comfortable, mm. um, especially if it's during the cool phase. Yes. I'd, for quite a while. Yeah. You know, if um, I'd be fairly comfortable like that for you know. Mm -hmm. A good 10-15 minutes really yeah. without worrying. Mm -hmm. Half flow kind of vaguely yeah. about five minutes oh. or so and um, though I'd probably prompt you more regularly yeah. but yeah. I'd be I wouldn't be mm -hmm. stressing yes but I'd be prompting yeah flow down mm -hmm. so with flow down but there's only a little forward flow yeah you, you know a few hundred mils maybe mm -hmm. um, 
so I keep an eye on the timer and I would remind you at one minute yeah. and at two minutes I'd want the flow back up. Yeah, yeah, because essentially so you've got a patient with no circulation. Effectively, you've no circulation yeah. at that yeah. point. And the, the other thing that's really important to remember when you've had a proper flow down like that mm-hmm. um, is that you have to pay back that oxygen debt mm, yeah. and it takes time. So sometimes, especially with grafts, when there's lots of flow up, flow down, yeah. you know, for moving side biting clamps and things yeah. like that, um, sometimes you need to actually just stop for mm-hmm. a moment yeah. to let the let everything recover before mm-hmm. we do another flow down. Yeah. Um, so occasionally I will have to say, you know, we just need to keep the flow up for a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and I tend to gauge that by watching my venous saturation. So you see your venous yeah. saturations really plummet and then start to recover. Yeah. Um, that other thing I was going to ask about is, is steep hypothermic circulatory arrest and flow rates okay. within that in terms of visceral flow rates and oh, okay. how, um, yeah, what, what sort of flow rates we should be you know, doing anti-grade cerebral perfusion at or you know, visceral perfusion at and, and how is that determined by the oxygen delivery um, sort of formulas that you've already described or is that based on something different? Not really because mm-hmm. one, in, in patients where you've done hypothermic circulatory mm-hmm. arrest the oxygen consumption is practically nil. Yeah, technically it should be nothing really. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> really it is much more about um, sort of pressure in those mm. scenarios and having sort of pressure and flow. Right. Um, so generally for antegrade cerebral perfusion, you're looking at um, about 100 mils per 10 kilos of weight. Right. So in a 70 kilo patient, you want mm-hmm. to aim for about 700 mils mm-hmm. per minute. Yeah. You often don't achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's really just being done based on generating a nice pressure mm-hmm. and looking at the cerebral saturations and making sure the cerebral saturations yeah. look fine. Mm-hmm and that they're even. Um, if it's retrograde mm. cerebral perfusion, which we don't use that often, but when we do, then you're looking, um, you've got a much lower flow. You won't mm. generate the si- same sorts of flow, probably mm. about half. Right. Um, and and why is that? Is that just in terms of the pressure in the venous yeah, circuit is yeah. going backwards so you don't get the same sort of you pressure? Don't, you, you don't want the same yeah. kind of pressure. So we'll use the CVP as yeah. a, a marker and you really want that to be kind of in the region of about 30. Right. Um, you don't want the, the venous pressure to be any higher than in, that. In the same way as if you're putting a coronary sinus cannula in, you don't want yeah. to be exceeding those sorts of pressures, yeah. similar similar principle. Okay. Um, and, and in those patients, then it, it's very important to look for um, the fact that the cerebral saturations obviously mm-hmm. are okay, but that they're e- balanced, equal. equal. Yeah. And when you talked about antegrade cerebral perfusion, you talk about pressure. Um, is that something that you're monitoring from your side yes. then? Yeah. yeah. And what sort of pressure? Are you looking for the same sort of pressure as you would in any arterial cannula? Is so, still... yeah, line pressure, um, similar to any arterial cannula. Mm-hmm. I tend to equate it a little bit to running antegrade cardioplegia yes. when I talk to trainees. Yeah. Um, so, um, you want it to be in the region of maybe 150 to 180 millimetres of mercury, mm-hmm. um, certainly no higher than that. Yeah, I see, brilliant. Is there anything that in particular that you uh, that you think that we should we should be doing or that we could do better, like as uh, when we're training or you know, to, to get better understanding of bypass or, or I think that you kind of think, oh, I wish they, I wish they'd do this. Or <laughs> I think the thing is, um, I've just actually, um, with the anaesthetists, mm-hmm. um, 
produce like a little training document for um, junior and ethotists yeah. that come in just so that they've got some basic information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um, and the first thing I put in that was ask a perfusionist. Yeah. So I know we can look a bit cross sometimes and a bit scally, but yeah. we, especially some of the, you know, the older guys who've been around for a few years, we have a lot of resource yes. in terms of, you know, we've been around the block a few times, mm-hmm. we've been through all kinds of mm-hmm. incidents over the years. So just chat to us, you know, mm-hmm. we're always happy to show people anything on the pump or answer mm-hmm. any questions. Um, and it's always nice to know that people are interested enough mm-hmm. to actually ask, yeah. you know. Um, we, we tend to not react well to people who think they know everything. But if you're prepared yes. to ask a question, then we'll love it. Which is sensible. Yeah, one scenario I wanted to ask you about um, is when you have to go on bypass in a hurry. Okay. So say there's a circumstance where, and the main thing is actually anticoagulation, yes. I think, in these circumstances, because all of a sudden it's like, right, there's no pressure or whatever you're in an emergency situation and whether it be someone post-op or pre-op or whatever and you just have to quote crash on to bypass but in those circumstances you know you may not be fully anticoagulated I think most of the time it's a case of just giving the heparin and getting on with yeah. it but is that is that what do you guys make of what's a sort of ideal scenario and that well, what I know it's not an ideal scenario what's but a, what should we be doing so well in that scenario I mean from a um, a surgical perspective, you just need to get some cannula in, don't yeah, you really, and, yeah. and get to a position where we can go on bypass. Um, generally, the anaesthetist will give a large bolus, mm-hmm. um, so you know, more than um, three milligrams per kilo, mm-hmm. just to make sure they've got plenty. Um, but you don't know whether it's actually going around the patient, whether it's yeah. just pooled somewhere. Mm-hmm. So we will put quite a lot in the pump as well. Right. You end up over anticoagulating these patients. Yeah but just so that you can get on bypass. And quite often you've gone on bypass in those scenarios with um, absolutely no idea really. And it's a little bit party mouth for for a moment, but when you do get to actually check an ACT, once you've got on and you're settled, it's generally a massively high number because the patients have so much happening. Yeah, and I suppose when you, so you're giving it through the pump, so at least that means that your kit is anticoagulated, so there's less chance of you having an emergency with the oxygenator or something yeah. like that to, to make sh- make sure that that's nice and safe. So it kind of comes from both angles, the anaesthetist mm. and you guys, and we're just trying to get those pipes yeah. in and hold them in so they don't come out again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> super. Well, I think I think I've fully picked your brains enough for today. Thank you so much. That's it's okay. really helpful, um, and I'm I'm sure loads of other people will find this really useful as well. Thank you very very much for joining me. And uh, yes, no problem. <laughs> So thank you again to Sarah Shirley for sharing her expertise with us here on the SCTS Education Podcast. I very much hope that you found this valuable. I know I did. Um, again, if there's anything you'd like to share or suggestions, um, please contact me at sctseducationpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks very much for listening.